Hey, y'all. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, C. How you doing, girl? Well, I'm, I'm doing well, E. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> Maintaining. Learning to sing songs in a strange land. Listen, That's what I'm doing. Harmonizing. Scatting over here. <laughs> Bebopping. <laughs> Breakdancing. <laughs> Come on, pop lock it. Okay, at the Howard Johnson, the Sheraton. Listen, All right, listen. yes. So, actually, yeah. no, I'm pop locking in my house, right? Because we're That's under right. quarantine. Yes, we're and you have been you have been serious about that life. Oh yes, oh yes, yeah. very serious. You're serious. I've filled up my gas tank for the third time this year. Three. <laughs> not again. It's not again. <laughs> I'm not playing with y'all. All right. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. I received this wisdom. Woo. Mm-hmm. So, um, where's Michelle, girl? You know, Michelle is out there doing all the things, serving, <laughs> serving the church, serving the peoples, you know, taking care of the kiddos. You know, she is the James Brown of, 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 of activism, <laughs> artist working woman in the activism game. <laughs> she is every so woman. She's out there. She, she, she's a Shaka Khan. She does have a bit of a Shaka spirit to her. We debated this one time, but that's all right. how much I love Tina Turner. And we went back and forth about, you know, who loves her more? But I think she got more of a Shaka Khan spirit to her. But <laughs> we'll see what she say when she listens to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, y'all, you know, when Michelle's yes. out of the table, that means that we have a special guest. It is a Black Girl Magic episode. Cue yes. the charms. And I am so excited about our guest. I know I say this every time. Bundle for real. Um, <laughs> and, and you do say that every time because you are a bona fide hype woman. Let me just be I clear. Am. I miss my calling. I miss my calling in life. Uh, no, but I am hyped because first of all, it's our final Black Girl Magic uh, episode of the season. We it it's is. coming to a close. Yeah. Uh, and this person that's coming to the table is last but definitely and certainly not least we have dr tiffany m gill at the table hey tiffany, how you doing dr gill hi ladies hi ladies so nice to be here at the table with you ladies to round out this black girl magic thing hope to bring some black girl magic to the magic that is already here come oh, on oh yeah oh yeah guaranteed on. Guaranteed, guaranteed. <laughs> but you know, just in case, just in case the sisters at the table don't know about all of the magic that you bring, let me go ahead and put them on game because they need to know what is going on. Uh, Dr. Tiffany M. Gill is a professor, historian, and nationally recognized researcher and scholar of African-American history. She is the author of the award-winning book, Beauty Shop Politics, African-American Women's Activism in the Beauty Industry, and co-editor of Turn the World Over, Black Women and Internationalism. A graduate of Georgetown and Rutgers University, Dr. Gill was named one of the top 25 women in higher education by diverse issues in higher education in 2000. 2018. A nationally recognized expert in African-American women's history, the civil rights movement, black fashion and beauty culture, and travel and migration studies, she has provided expert commentary for various news outlets, including National Public Radio, C-SPAN, CNBC, Vox, The Washington Post, and New York Times. Dr. Gill has also served as a consultant for international beauty retailer Sephora 
and has a historical, as a historical archivist for the Netflix documentary Becoming, based on Michelle Obama's best-selling memoir. Since dedicating her life to Christ while a graduate student, she has served as the project director of, of a Christian counseling center, the director of an English as a second language program, and part of a church planting team. Dr. Gill be doing it all, y'all. Dr. Gill has also served as a leader on missions and service projects and designed to come back to um, the impact of homelessness, drug addiction, and the HIV AIDS crisis on youth in Colombia, Cuba and Zambia, a booking girl, she is a tea snob, an amateur makeup artist. Dr. Tiffany currently lives in Philadelphia where she serves as a deacon and member of the SALT Women's Ministry Leadership Team at Epiphany Fellowship. She can be found on social media at Sable Victorian. Welcome to the table, Tiffany. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yes, give her, give her her flowers. Her <laughs> I was tired just listening to that. We're that giving you a tired listening. Damn. The, <laughs> People need to hear every sentence. God is good. Everything. Everything. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so excited. First, first of all, I didn't even tell y'all that Dr. Dr. Gill is my friend. So, <laughs> uh, you better claim they me. Know. You better they, claim they, me. They know. They She's know. She's my friend. She's my friend. You better claim me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? For those that don't know, Tiffany, can you talk to our sisters at the table? Talk to them about how you came to faith. Absolutely, because of, of all the things that you read, that's the most important. Um, and, I, and you hinted at it, but I came to faith while in graduate school in a doctoral program in American history at Rutgers, which is probably one of the most unlikely places <laughs> to come to faith. And it was after about a year or so where um, when I was finishing up undergraduate, my whole life just kind of fell apart um, mm. from a breakup, my father passed. It was just a lot of things going on, a depression. And I just hit complete rock bottom that all the things that I was striving after um, seemed meaningless. Um, mm. I was going after all these kind of pursuits and nothing felt, nothing had any meaning. And mm. so it sent me into a real depression, but thankfully there were folks that reached out and ministered to me. And I, the way I always think about it is it was New Year's Eve, 1996. I'm, I'm aging myself here. It was the, <laughs> after the first semester of my of graduate school. And it was New Year's Eve. We're in New York City. And usually on New Year's Eve, we would get turned up. That's what my friends and I do. But by God's grace, one of my good friends had just started, come, came back to the Lord and said, well, why don't we go to a church service? I was like, instead of like the club? Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> And People the Lord literally had an appointment for me that day because we wow. get to the service and I don't even remember the message, but I just know it was the first time that I really opened my heart up to the gospel. You know, as, as a black girl with Southern and Caribbean roots, you know, there was a cultural Christianity that was surrounding my life that I, if someone asked me, I would say I was a Christian just because I wasn't a Muslim, right? Or something else. But that was the day where the gospel was preached clearly wow. and I just completely surrendered and never looked back. But the, the crazy thing was, like I said, this is my first semester of graduate school. I was on this PhD track because that's what I felt like I wanted to pursue. And so immediately I felt as though, well, everything that I had been pursuing in my life has been garbage. And I thought mm. the Lord was going to call me off this path. And I remember praying and going to an altar and saying, Lord, like, I don't even want this degree unless you want it for me. I don't want any of this. And I wrestled it out. I remember it was one of my early prayers that I was like, Lord, I will walk away from all this. And I remember wow. the Lord just, just speaking to me so clearly that, no, this is the place where I've called you. 
And so my early walk in discipleship was aligned with trying to get to graduate school. I said, there's nothing like a doctoral program um, to make you turn to the Lord uh, when you need him in over those seven years of, of okay. getting a doctorate. And mm. it really was a refiner's fire. Um, and, wow. and going back to my doctorate, I had a whole different mm. approach to it where I just knew that even though I was going at a secular school and a secular degree, okay. that I was going on mission. Amen. And that that this degree was bought with the price as well. And so um, that that was it. And it's been, gosh, I guess it's 24 years, whatever, 96, you're not going to do math. So 24 oh, no. years. That's why I do. I'm a historian. because <laughs> um, okay. So okay. 24 years ago, and Jesus has just been sweeter and sweeter and gotten me through PhDs and tragedies and everything in between. Girl. So that's my story. Mm, mm. <laughs> oh, that is... Thank you so much for sharing that beautiful testimony with us. And especially, you know, and also the truth of just how, how gritty and grimy and how hard grad school is, you know, Listen. so... <laughs> Listen, no. not for the faint of heart, as you will it, <laughs> it is not. It is not. It's all true. Well, there is this theme in your bio, and even just now when you were sharing with us about the kind of this missionary's heart. And I wonder if you could help us to make the connection about what it means to be both an academic and with a missionary's heart. To connect those yeah. dots, I'm thinking particularly about some of the very young women who listen, young in my mind, sure. uh, very young in my mind women who listen, <laughs> who are still thinking about vocational identity. If you could help them to think about what it means mm -hmm. to be a mm -hmm. Christian in an academic space. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's so important. Um, and I was just having a conversation with a, a younger woman about this about just career and vocation. And uh -huh. one of the things that the Lord has really impressed in my heart is that I should never be giving more to my profession than I'm given to his service. And in fact, Ooh. my mm. profession is his service, right? Mm. And so for all of the kind of growing and accolades mm. that I might receive in that space, if God isn't getting that for his work in a very tangible kingdom way, then it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, um, like I said, I think that was one of the beautiful things about being called while in graduate school is that I never had the space to divorce how I approached my study of history, how I approached my study of African-American history, how I approached the, the academic profession could never really divorce it from my walk with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so what that meant for me in terms of the topics that I feel like the Lord sent me on this journey was to find God in spaces where we don't expect him was to tell the stories, particularly of African-American women who are made in the image of God, yeah. um, women who are believers and some women who aren't, but often right. women who sort of got their, their, their teeth in church, who, who were women who were discarded throughout American society and culture, and to tell yes. their story mm. from God's perspective. Um, of really shining the light on how they were made in the image of God, mm. how they worked for God, how they pursued justice for their communities. That I really had this sense that I had this burden to tell their stories. And then as an academic professional, you know, academia is not a, it's not a godly place for the most part. And it's a really <laughs> nasty, I mean, that's a nice way to say it, a nasty cutthroat environment. And I'm sure yes, yes. a lot of the women at the table understand being in cutthroat environments. It may not be academia, it may be in a corporate world, wherever it is. Um, and one of the things that the Lord impressed on me is that your journey will not look like their journey. Mm -hmm. That you, he called 
called me there to be generous. Generosity isn't usually a, um, you know, a trait that is, is, you know, valued in academia. It's all about sort of getting your accolades, getting yours. Um, And the Lord has always made me work with excellence, right? Mm. Do work as unto him so that the work I do needs to be excellent and I will spend Mm -hmm. the time to get it excellent. But in terms of how I treat others, in terms of how I approach my work, in terms of the things and the corners I am not gonna be willing to cut, that I will always stand out for that. And and that's always one of the compliments from folks who even aren't believers, but see God in some way that you don't do this like other people do. And that to me is the greatest thing, is, is that one of the beautiful things about being in a dark environment is that even with a little flashlight, <laughs> you can shine some light. And so no matter what room I'm in that's dark, when we come in with light, no matter how small we might think it is, by doing things in ways that honor God, by bearing his, the fruit mm. of the spirit, um, by, by making mm-hmm. sure that Christ is all in all, mm-hmm. it really can make a difference and an impact both with my colleagues and with students. Mm, that's beautiful, Tiffany. I'm, you know, I... Um, you, I've seen you lecture. I had the honor of seeing you lecture quite a few times. And something that you often say is um, that uh, when you're talking about historical figures and people, these are real people that lived, <laughs> and uh, you always talk about the need to take their faith seriously. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, and I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, not even just the reason why you take your faith seriously, but I'm wondering if. Um, because you actually you embody that. And I'm wondering if uh, you've gotten pushback at all, um, maybe in your academic spaces for uh, being outspoken about your faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not in the classroom preaching Jesus, but you, know, mm-hmm. but you, but you are you. I mean, even in your um, uh, the, the foreword to your book, you 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 dedicate, you know, um, you have a portion there about God. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and uh, have you had yeah. gotten any pushback about that or any resistance? Oh, yes. Absolutely. There, there's always a lot of resistance. And, and one of the things, I mean, sadly, because of the ways that Christianity, particularly forms of white evangelicalism, have, Come on. Come you know, have, have made Christianity synonymous with yeah. certain political platforms, yes. it makes it very difficult a lot of times to engage and, and sort of stand and tell people, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Christ, mm. and not have people completely shut down. And so one of the things that I always try to do that, you know, there's, I've never not said in any academic space that I'm not a believer, mm. um, but I've always tried to follow that up relationally with what that means, because I think, particularly for a lot of folks in academia who have sort of cast off the church right. um, for years now, right, and that there's no real space for kind of um, taking Christianity seriously, that hearing that someone's a Christian becomes a wall and a block. And so I have had people, I remember when I was um, going up for tenure, when I was at the University of Texas teaching there, and everybody was all in a tizzy and they were like, well, what's your plan? What's your strategy? And I was like, I'm gonna be honest with you. My strategy is to do my best work and to trust mm-hmm. God. And I remember, because literally that was it. I was like, you know, I'm gonna do, you know, both of those things. And they ridiculed me <laughs> and told me I was a fool. And everybody was saying how I was going to get tenure. I said, that's, and everyone's like, what's your backup plan? I was like, whether I get tenure, which those of you who know academia Mm. know tenure is, you know, sort of the the, the mountain everybody's Mm -hmm. trying to climb. Whether or not I was successful, and I remember saying this, and I was like, Lord, you might have to hold me to this, and we have to see if my words are true. Whether I get it or not, 
that night I will go to bed knowing I am loved fully by Christ. And that morning, whether I have tenure or not, I will wake up knowing that I'm fully loved by Christ. And that has to be my anchor above anything. And I just remember the ridicule from that. Um, and, you know, by God's grace, I did get it. But I, I really believed in my heart that I had to take that stand and show that all the things that people are striving for in, in academia is not true. I remember when I took a stand for the Sabbath, just, you know, just my own personal thing when yeah. I was in graduate school. Um, because I would be in church with like books under my Bible trying to get some reading in for class, right? Like history <laughs> programs are that insane where you're reading like 75 books a week, right? So you're just always trying to read and I wouldn't focus. And so, you know, the Lord gave me, you know, the discipline for a Sabbath. And I remember folks telling me I would never make it to graduate school if I took mm. Sundays off. Um, and so it's it's been those acts of faith where mm. I just had to trust that just because I'm not working 24 hours a day or that I'm active in ministry, and then I tell folks, I can't teach on certain nights or I can't do yeah. meetings on certain nights uh, because I'm involved in ministry and that's yeah. important to me, mm. that my Sabbath's important to me. Um, that has gotten some pushback, but I just continue to trust God that he'll fight those battles for me. Come on, come on. And y'all, Tiffany is a prolific historian. We ain't talking about no bootleg, you know, somebody <laughs> that's getting by the, by the skin of their teeth. No. She is a legit, uh, a prolific and brilliant um, historian. And so that just is a testament to her own, obviously her own um, brilliance, but also God's just favor um, and grace uh, over your life, Good. Tiffany. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. Well, you know what? It's time for a commercial break. Let's uh, take a quick little break uh, so we can pay some bills. And then we're going to come back and talk to you some more about, uh, about all the things, all right, that encompass 2020 and how we going to make it, how we going to get over. Uh, so don't go nowhere. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, y'all. We know that due to this pandemic, it feels like the bottom is falling out for so many of us, which is why we are honored to bring this new book resource to you all. It is entitled Learning to Be, Finding Your Center After the Bottom Falls Out by Juanita Campbell Rasmus. When everything in her life came to a stop, Pastor Juanita Rasmus found that she had to learn to be with herself and with God all over again. In her new book, Learning to Be, Pastor Juanita shares a wise, frank, and witty account of her own story of exhaustion and depression, offering practical insights and life-giving spiritual practices for you to try on your own. If you're longing for a trustworthy companion through dark days, this book is here for you. Now, for our Truth Table listeners, you can save 40% off of Learning to Be when you order at ivypress.com using promo code TRUTH20. That's promo code TRUTH20 when you order from ivypress.com. And this offer expires on September 30th. So jump on it, y'all. 40% off of learning to be when you purchase at ivypress.com using promo code TRUTH20. This offer expires on September 30th. And we are back at the table with Dr. Tiffany Gill. Um, gosh, you know what? I got all the questions, but go ahead. See, go ahead. I know you got some bubbles. <laughs> well, well, you, you know, we, you know we, we, we got Dr. Gill at the table. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think we would re be remiss if we did not talk about politics today. Before we even get to politics today, 
let let let's build an on ramp to politics today because yeah. I, I am just you know your 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 beauty shop politics. If folks who have not read it or not familiar with with this book, yes. um, uh, you know it's described as uh, you know a bold assessment of black beauty salons as vital sites for social change. And I when I tell you I love that I love it. <laughs> um, I love I love just the the. The, the how the common things that often are taken for granted or things that we look at superficially um, can be can be places and locations of galvanizing mm -hmm. uh, political identity and political power uh, for black women and that and that beauty is a part of that and and self-care is a part of that and, and therefore community care is a part of that so mm -hmm. I would love for you just to give us a, a little bit about your work there and and then we'll talk more about um, how, how we can draw from those insights of old for today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Beauty Shop Politics was, was a fun project for me. I was in graduate school, you know, reading all the books, writing all the papers. And I knew that the stories that I wanted to tell and focus on were stories where Black women's lived experiences came out, right? Where it wasn't as if, and I, I think of a lot of what you all are doing here at the table, like what happens when Black women get together? What happens when Black women have spaces of their own? And I've always believed that just historically, when we look at the spaces where Black women gather, really powerful things happen. And so I was really interested in women in the civil rights movement. I came into grad school, I'm gonna do something on women in the civil rights movement because as much as we know and as much great scholarship that's out there about that, there are still countless women whose stories we still don't know. And so I went into the archive as a good historian trying to find stories and I kept noticing that a lot of the women who were leading civil rights initiatives in their communities, not the stories, the national stories that were dominated by King, Martin Luther King and a lot of the men, but when you really got down to the grassroots of what was happening in Durham, North Carolina, what was happening in Montgomery, what was happening in Atlanta, they were Black women who were beauty salon owners who were at the helm. Mm -hmm. And as a Black woman who, you know, spent her childhood tortured in beauty shop, which is funny, people always ask me, <laughs> oh, did you do this out of a love for beauty shop? I was like, it's probably the opposite, right? Like, it's okay. probably more therapy. You know, I was tender-headed, which is the curse <laughs> of Black girlhood. Um, had yeah. a hand on your stand. No, y'all know what it is. Tender -headed. My mom is still tender headed. Some folks don't grow out of it. Some folks <laughs> don't grow out of tender headed. I was good and tender headed. <laughs> and so they only let me go to the salon for my hair when it was a special occasion, pictures Easter or something. But I would go with my mom. And I loved going. I remember Miss Smith's Beauty Shop. Well, I called her Miss Smith. I don't, she had a first name, I'm sure, but I wouldn't allow to call her that. And it just was this bustling place where Black women are talking and engaging and talking about their lives and talking about the community and folks would come in and sell stuff and political folks would come in. And so when I looked at all these women in the historical record who were beauticians, it made sense to me. That, their that these beauticians and their beauty shops would be vibrant spaces where Black right. women as political mm. leaders were being nurtured. Uh, one, because these were economically autonomous spaces. I look at the 20th century, when most Black women, the majority of Black women for most of the early 20th century are working as domestic workers. Honorable work, I come from lines of domestic workers, but that was work that was under the mm -hmm. surveillance of white folks, right? right. Like they right. couldn't, and even professional women who were teachers or social workers or nurses often were beholden to white school boards or white medical right. boards. Yeah. Yeah. But these beauticians, these are businesswomen. These yep. are women who own mm -hmm. not only their own labor, but they owned a space, an institution yeah. where black women could come together and gather. And so as I got into it, I saw that 
beauticians were registering people to vote, um, holding mm-hmm. citizenship education schools, mm-hmm. were raising money for to get people out of jail. We're, we're doing all this subversive work. And what's really powerful about it, and Christina, you hinted on this, is that why it was so powerful is because people dismissed it. Because mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. as much as women in there getting their yes, hair done, they do. one of the mm. things, a, a colleague of mine, Quincy Mills, has written a, a book about Black barbers, a great book as well. Mm. And what he found, like we found surveillance from the FBI and from others of barbershops. I have yet, not saying it didn't happen, but in my research, I never found a beauty oh, shop under my. any surveillance. Wow. Why? Wow. Because it's women, right? What could be, that they could be organizing. There yep. Gossiping, right? That's always the thing that's happening. Whereas the barbershops, that was what was me. And beauty shops, they had sh- full out organized yes. campaigns, right, going on. And, and they were under the radar. And so I always encourage, particularly Black women, even this time of COVID, right, where we're not able to gather in spaces, is to think about the natural places where we connect, if not physically, mm. um, socially, spiritually, mm-hmm. and, and think about what we can actually do in those spaces to not just think about ourselves and care for ourselves, which is important. And beauty shops certainly gave Black women a space to be cared for. But also thinking about as we come together in these collective spaces, and I actually think social media is not that space because social media is not safe for Black women. Um, I think social media has great potential and we've seen with Black Lives Matter and other kinds of hashtag movements. Mm -hmm. But in terms of places that are outside of the white gaze, places that are safe for Black women, I don't know that that's social media. And so I think in this time of COVID, in this time of so much digital gathering, we can learn from these beauticians and begin to think about and process what are the safe spaces for Black women? And where can we gather to really have an impact and a potential in our communities? Mm, Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I was, I think people would have assumed it's social media, but social media really ain't safe. Watch the social dilemma, y'all. Ain't safe for Black women. (laughs) <laughs> right. I haven't even yet, but just the way right. I mean, you know, but like get it. social media is not wasn't You're built right. by us, and it's not built for us. And right. so yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's a tool. I think it's useful, and I'm grateful for it, and I think we should use it. But I think if we just rely upon social media as mm-hmm. our form of activism or our way of gathering politically, um, the consequences have been and and will continue to be dire. Mm, 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 mm. Well, you know, uh, goodness, you know, we respect historians at this here table. And <laughs> oh, honestly, yes, I, we do. No, so did the Lord. I mean, look at all the books of history in the Bible. I try to tell people all the time. You know, so many my profession is, is biblical. Okay. That's right. You know, look at Psalm <laughs> 73. Look it at all the times where God tells us to remember, right? Remember. He tells us yes. you forget things like sin, but to teach to the next yeah. generation yeah. the faithfulness. Yeah. God. And for those of us who are African-American, come mm. on, we are a miracle, right? Absolutely. Like Black people are a yep. miracle, a miracle of God's grace. Absolutely. And we have to tell the stories come on. of the miracle of Black folks. So I, I, I like the Lord has blesses history. Um, oh, and yeah. we, just, we need to. He te- so many of the books of the Bible are historical accounts. Yes. And it's important yes. to God that we, we remember his faithfulness and remember the struggles and remember how he helps us to overcome. And that's no more important for no one else but for African-Americans. We are are so so forgetful, meaning we meaning humans. We're so forgetful. And just from one generation, I mean, right now we have this whole, I I can't wait to hear Eve's question, but it just triggered Mm -hmm. me. You know, we got got folks that are looking at things that happened one generation ago and completely, or not looking at it. Don't, Don't even recognize the importance of the vote. 
right. the importance of even the organizing that you're talking about in those beauty shops. And so we have got to tell these stories from generation to generation in order for that respect and sobriety to transfer yeah. From yeah. one generation to the next, but go on here. I'm gonna be quiet. Yeah, no, no, no. For because well, remembering is an act of worship, right? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a, a big, uh, a primary way that we honor God is to remember and say thank you. Um, so uh, anyway, but well, in that same vein, actually, I do, I, I do think of historians as prophets of the culture uh, because y'all happen, uh, y'all know what happened in the past, and you can see the parallels, you can track the patterns um, in the past, and so therefore you're able to see or at least discern a bit of what's going on right now, and you can see um, some patterns and some maybe some parallels, and I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Um, if you can take us back into time, um, and if you could think in like a, of a year that is similar to 2020, yet dissimilar, because I have a sense that 2020 is unlike mm -hmm. other years, but I do have a sense that I know that ain't nothing yeah. new on the sun. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us about That's like, right, exactly. The Lord told year, us. Yeah. And there's a year that comes to mind that you're like, Ooh, 2020 is giving me. 19 yeah. what or 18 because <laughs> right. we could be back right. there too. we could be okay. back there so you see, <laughs> yeah I what mean, year is coming up for you what's similar 1919 i mean it's, it's you know it's it's almost you know oh, literally right. century cyclical <laughs> not ready um for i mean i think when you know there's 1919. 1919 right because 1919 was a year um and this is one thing when you talk about historians right as a historian i was not at all surprised by the rise of donald trump um, I fill out my electoral map. I'm a, I'm a you know, political geek junkie. And so I always have my electoral map. And you know, all this, the statisticians and the social scientists had all these algorithms. And I did it based on historical instinct. And I, my map was closer than any of those folks, Come right? On. Because we knew that after, this is back after Reconstruction in the 19th century, whenever there's a rise of Black political power, there's always following a crushing blow to yep. extinguishment. So that's why I felt like we yep. were four years ago. I feel like now we're, it's more akin to 1990. There are, way, there are things about 2020 that are, mm -hmm. un feels unprecedented, even mm -hmm. as a historian. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, I, and, and I, you know, we, we kid in our history jokes. Yes, we have crews of history jokes. Like, you know, we're like, there's going to be a whole subfield of history just called 2020 studies, right? Like, yeah. just trying to unravel that. Tiffany, what are, some of the, what's, what are some of the unprecedented things you're like, kind of like, I yeah. really ain't seen you so <laughs> let, let me go back to, to why it's like 1919. Yeah, sure. 1919 was also smack dab in the middle of a global pandemic, right? The, mm -hmm. the flu of 1918 um, was ravaging through the world and in the right. United States. Um, and 1919, the summer of 1919 was known as Red Summer because mm -hmm. the blood mainly of African-Americans spilled in the streets as a result of white vigilante violence, white riots, Chicago, had one of the most famous mm. ones where a young black boy was on the beach um, and floated over to the white side of the beach, was stoned by a group of whites and riots erupt all through the city. So mm. in terms of the ways that um, global pandemics and health yeah. crises show what the society is made of, right? Mm -hmm. Expose the ways that racial tensions and class tensions and all those issues are there. Um, it's also a moment where women um, were fighting for the right to vote, right? So there's a lot of agitation happening at that time. So in terms of both the kind of peril, particularly against Black life, the peril against Black people and health, 
and just the global pandemic, as well as a rising up of increased militancy among African-Americans who are trying to fight against these things, that feels very much akin to, 20, to 2019, 2020. I don't even know what year we are anymore. I feel like we've lost this whole year. Where it feels different is the ways that, like, I, it feels like we're having red summer of 1919, the Spanish flu mm-hmm. outbreak, and the Great Depression all at once, right? So the economic, mm-hmm. pure economic collapse, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. a crisis of leadership, which is really what, what is happening as well, um, is just making this moment, you know, a moment that would have been ch- challenging, right? A global pandemic is going to be challenging. But I think that added intensity of the attacks on Black life with the economic disaster, with the health disaster, um, really does make me feel like we're on uncharted territory. But also, you know, and it's very rare as a historian that I often have much optimism. But I honestly have also been excited by the unprecedented waves of um, outcries in the streets um, mm-hmm. and the pressure that is being put to bring some change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a unique moment. I think that this is a moment we need to seize upon and mm-hmm. continue battling to make sure that Black people and Black lives matter. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So, so helpful. Mm-hmm. So, so Tiffany, if, if you had your magic wand, okay, if those things, <laughs> things just, I don't, the Lord never gave me one. I've been asking for one for years. Come on. <laughs> Look, I would adapt for whole lot It's yours. <laughs> and, 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 and you could somehow, you know, sprinkle its dust, its fairy dust on, <laughs> on, 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 um, you know, on, on the electorate right now in order to wake up and to be, you know, consciously aware based on what you know from history. What would be some of the first signs that you knew, okay, they're, 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 they're awake now. They, they see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us some indicators of I think kind of the electorate that's taking it voting is important okay yeah um taking seriously i i think always my my sort of compass for where we need to be politically is i always take my cues from the formerly enslaved particularly the first generation that was freed um during the reconstruction period from 1865 Mm -hmm. to the 1870s because they came out with such a clear sense Mm -hmm. about what needed to be done i mean they really did brilliance right these are folks who didn't have access to reading and all this, but they, they were denied freedom for so long that they could best clearly articulate it. Mm. And they talked about political rights and they fought for political rights, yes. but political rights were never just about voting. Voting was a part of it, but it was voting in addition to continuing to put pressure yes. on those who once they're in office. It was voting as a communal activity, Uh, you know, because of the 15th Amendment, women were excluded from voting Um, through Mm -hmm. the 15th Amendment. It was only black men who received the right to vote. But black women and, you know, commentators would look at this and say, what's wrong with these women? Don't they realize they can't vote? Black women showed up to the polls on Election Day, too, Mm -hmm. because they saw it as a communal act. Yeah. And they brought the kids and they yes. went to political conventions and they spoke. So I want to wow. see us have not just an individual sense of my vote, but thinking of voting as a collective, particularly as voting rights are being so attacked that yeah. we have to think about not just what's my plan to vote, but can I take someone to the polls? Can I help yeah. someone with an absentee ballot? Can I take their ballot down to the mailbox? Right. Yeah. So this, I think, you know, thinking of this in collective, but then also connecting 
not just national vote, right? What I loved about the enslaved folks is that, yeah, president, all that is important to vote for, as we see. But also, I think this crisis has even showed us that our local leaders matter a whole lot, because a lot of our experiences across this country are different based on who our local leaders are. And so these enslaved folks were, were keenly aware of the people that were doing, they, they did their work, they, they did their investigations. How mm. much more all of us with literacy and abundance of information to get that out. So not just a cry for voting, although I tell everybody with all my breath, vote. And if you're in Pennsylvania, I'll come and take your ballot and take right, it down when right. I take mine down, my absentee. But this is wider sense of a political um, communal understanding mm. um, that's about that begins with voting but does not end there that mm. begins with thinking about who's in federal office but is also concerned about who's on our school boards and who's in our city council because we're so intimately connected to community so to me I want to see a whole kind of political sea change where yes voting numbers need to come up we have abysmal voting rates particularly younger people hello um, have abysmal yeah. rates the people yeah. who have the most to lose usually don't vote vote the least mm-hmm. um but to think of it in a collective sense so i, I hope that answers your question but i i, yeah. I just want to see a a broader vision of democracy a broader vision of what it means mm. yes. to be in this world and not of it a broader vision of what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth that is not just about voting but is about the kingdom of God and, and trying to be a vessel for the kingdom of God in various different ways, particularly mm-hmm. for believers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I like, mm-hmm. I love that communal um, reality and I love to, I love learning that this has been the case, you know, for our people, even when women, black women couldn't vote, they were still there. Um, that's yeah. so powerful. It's so profound and just speaks to just the importance of it as one <laughs> one tool in the toolbox, you know, um, and, and just this, just right. the power of being catechized around the power and the importance of the vote. I think a lot, the three of us at mm. the table have actually <laughs> been catechized in that way within our own family um, of origin. So I think that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you for lifting that up, uh, Tiffany. I'm wondering, um, you know, in your book, um, Beauty Shop Politics, African-American <laughs> Women's Activism in the Beauty Industry, y'all need to buy her book. <laughs> and learn you something okay so (laughs) you coined a term in your book um uh, it's called the politics of dignity which i love Mm -hmm. um can you explain to our sisters Mm -hmm. at the table what that is and Mm -hmm. what does that look like in 2020 in 2020 under a fascist regime what does the politics of dignity look like help us help us that's a great question um i came to this idea of the politics of dignity what i Mm -hmm. thought about the story of Ann Moody, who was a part of a sit-in and, you know, was in the sit-in, got ketchup and mustard and, and coffee and, you know, people spitting at her and throwing things at her. And after she was finished with the sit-in, she went into a beauty shop. And the way that she describes in, in, in her memoir, Coming of Age in Mississippi, how the women cared for her. How they, you know, they washed her hair, but they they took let her take her stockings off and they washed those out for her. Yeah. And they just kind of ministered to her soul. Mm. And so the beauty shop became this kind of respite for her, right? And I think that really kind of politicizes our very individual, selfish, capitalist idea of self-care, um, which is so, again, very individualistic, very... 
um, American, very capitalist, very sort of, you know, not biblical in some ways. And so for us to think about what does it mean for us to, to engage in political work, but to have spaces and to be involved with caring for one another in ways where our dignity can be restored. Um, and I think that's so important for Black women, just, you know, just making it through the day, walking through our professions, dealing with so many things, our dignity is often being tried, being stripped away. And particularly as women of God, that we should always be looking out for and caring for one another and thinking about how am I not just caring about my own soul, my own self-care, which is important. And I'm not saying that caring for your body and all those things is not important. But a politics of dignity, again, is back to this much more communal sense, which mm -hmm. is also about how am I creating within my community an ethic where we are affirming one another's dignity by the way we care for one another, by the way we speak to one another, by the way that we love one another. And so I think in the time of COVID, you know, there were lots of jokes and memes about how, you know, for a lot of folks, the first thing we're going to do is get our hair done coming out of um, quarantine and people were laughing about it, whatever. But to me, that's not entirely just frivolous, right? There's something right. about being locked down, wearing sweatpants 24 hours a day. And for Black women whose beauty has always been contested, where we are not considered beautiful by mainstream standards, um, just the act of being in a salon and being cared for by someone and having someone wash your hair and, and feeling beautiful again can be restorative. We need to do it in healthy ways, right? We need right. to make sure right. we're caring for one another in healthy ways in our homes and, and other things. But I think we have to make sure that our ethic of self-care is always mediated mm -hmm. by a larger community ethic of dignity and soul care and that we should be mm -hmm. looking out for one another with that. So that's yeah. what I was trying to get at with this idea of politics of dignity. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And yeah, you mentioned just kind of like the need, obviously, you know, with COVID, that's, um, uh, you know, it's adding, uh, throwing a wrench in some of the, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. in some of the yeah. traditional ways that maybe we gathered um, yeah. in the before times, as we call it, at the table. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. Tiffany, you can dream with us at the table. And maybe this is putting you on the spot. Mm -hmm. But can you imagine... Um, or dream at the table about what those communal spaces look like. I'm thinking kind of in my mind, I, 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 hush harbors are coming to mind. Mm -hmm. But what does it, because it's outdoor too. <laughs> right, what right. Look like? what, what, I mean, what, what would that communal space look like for us now? Because I think we're in the natural hair uh, how you can say, uh, I don't know how you want to say, um, uh, uh, call resurgence, movement, but, movement, right, right, you know, movement, way resurgence, because right. it's not new completely, right? right no. um, but I'm thinking, you know, a lot of us do our own hair now. And mm -hmm. I, I, when I was reading your book, I was thinking, man, I wish, I'm, I miss going to the salon. I miss, I'm tired of doing my own hair. Like, you know, I remember that yeah. community. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, sometimes. Talk, right, sometimes. But this I think, true. you know why I think we long for it? <laughs> think about it. Your first memory of getting your hair done was not at a salon. It was probably on the floor between your right, mama, right. auntie, or grandmother's knees, true. right? There, that there's an intimacy true. about that, right? Yes. There's, yes. there's something, the salon is one thing. That's how we monetize it and get fancy. But like, you know, and these weren't always good memories, again, because I was tenderheaded. But like, I remember <laughs> Sunday nights, my sister and I, in between my mom was the only cat on the thing. She let us watch her show. And, and it yeah. was part of this kind of communal ritual. Um, yes. Maybe we can do that in out, outdoor spaces. I think the idea of, of little hush harbors. I think walks have been really important mm. for me of with a sister friend out yes. 
partaking of God's nature and beauty and glory and, and speaking to one another in that space can be transformative, right? We have to be creative mm-hmm. in these moments. But I think right. what this moment will teach us is about intimacy, which this is really what I think came about even in the beauty shop is a sense of intimacy, um, a small sense of intimacy that we can still replicate in this time of COVID. And then I think the idea of just, you know, God's creation is, you know, I love that the COVID virus evaporates outdoors, right? Like it can't handle mm-hmm. air. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, not complete, but like there, that's a safe place mm-hmm. for us. And it's caused me to slow down and look at nature and to see God's creation in new ways. And so I, for me, that's been part of my soul care dignity practice. And I love, I had a walk with a sister friend this morning. Like mm-hmm. I love bringing mm-hmm. other black women into that space. And, and sort of dreaming together what can yeah. come of it. But I, I just think all of us need to look around us at what we have, the simple things, the discarded things, the maligned places, the things yeah. that don't seem important and, and find really the power that's there. It's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. No, I think, I think that's just a, a gorgeous picture. And it's so, it's so aligns with, um, you know, the, the theology of, you know, the, even the sacraments of the church, these common mm-hmm. things, the, mm-hmm. the cup and the bread and water and the way that God works through these things to testify to, you know, Emmanuel, God with us to the gospel itself. And um, yeah, I think it's definitely in 2020, it's the season to, to not take for granted the simple, mm-hmm. <laughs> to not take for granted. So thank you That's for right. reminding right. all of us of that right mm-hmm. now. I am going to shift gears into some utter foolishness um, now that we oh, talk, talk business. <laughs> we talked we've talked edifying and, and social yeah. politics business. Now we did. Now we're gonna shift gears because we need to get to know Tiffany better right now. Okay. Oh. So we are we're moving into a our black girl magic segment that we call Force Fun. Force fun. Okay. Yes, yes, okay. yes. So mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so, so we got some questions for you. We do, uh-huh. we do, we do, and uh-huh. and I, and I'm gonna kick, I'm gonna kick them off, E. And you know okay. which one, I'm, you know which one I'm taking now. Hopefully, I'm your mind ain't rusted. Okay, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Look, this what this what happens when you don't go fast enough. <laughs> so, so Tiffany, this is your question. Let me tell you something. It, it, it's very revealing. It's you know, you know, my background is psych, so it's 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 my it's my Rorschach. It's my you know PhD uh, kind of Rorschach thing right now. So. Um, One's got to go. Oh, I knew you was going to die. <laughs> I know. I know. I know, Kim. You, you, you're mad. You're mad. You're mad. I'm going to get you. <laughs> one, one, one's got to go. And, and, and your choices are. Uh-oh. Shaka Khan. Oof. Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. Whitney Houston. Mm. And Anita Baker. Oh, Lord. One. Dot. <laughs> Two. Well, come on now. Can't go. Okay. <laughs> can't go. And I have to do that. I gotta walk it back. I, gotta like, I ain't gonna answer the question. I'm gonna answer it in the reverse. Lord, because I I'm, I don't know the answer, so I gotta process it. Shaka can't go, and that's because okay. my dad worked for a, a for Atlantic Records for many years, and Shaka mm. used to record at the studio. And Shaka Khan has a daughter who is in between the age of my sister and I. My sister had two years apart and Shaka's daughter, Melody, was right in the middle. So whenever Shaka would record at the studio, she would tell my dad to bring my sister and I. And so I have childhood oh. memories of while Shaka's, and this is old school Shaka in the family. studio Shaka days. Family. 
Fucker fam. So like okay. we would be running around the studio at like three o'clock in the morning and all this. And you know, Shaka I had this photo of my sister and I that Shaka autographed and talked about what cute little black girls we are. So I can't, I can't. Shaka like fam. Wow. That's that's a really um, deep connection. <laughs> oh, I love Lisa Anita Baker. I got to see her in concert last year. She was Oh, Aretha, and you know, Aretha, you know, Aretha's gospel album, that collection that they did on, my Lord, that is one of the only things that I have is a, because I had it as a cassette, I had it as a CD, no, my parents had it as an album, <laughs> let, let me go back, I'm old, they probably had an A-track, but we were, we I had it on a cassette, and then I had it on a CD, and now it's on my digital. Whitney, I love Whitney. I'm sorry, Whitney. I'm sorry. I know. Wow. Wow. That was all the the soundtrack to all my like fifth grade crushes. Didn't we we almost have it all? Girl, you you, put y'all next to each other at lunch. What's about didn't we almost have it all? I know. I know. know. If I must. Whitney was schooling us. That's all right. That's all right. It, you look, 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 you said what you said. You I said, said what you said. said. That was my process. <laughs> that's where I came in the process. Ah, that's funny. Okay, okay. We, we respect that. You. Wait, we ain't mad at you. You had to choose. Oh, that, that, that hurts. That it hurts. was a difficult question, okay? Yes. Uh, the hardest right. one I think you've gotten today. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you treat your guests. That's how we do. This is how we do, girl. Okay. <laughs> so next question. If you could have any superpower in the world, mm-hmm. what superpower would you choose and why? <laughs> oh, goodness. Like right now, it would be, you know, this is like miracle working power. Let's talk it like, you know, like in the Holy Ghost. It would be to zap this virus. Hey. I mean, hey. I just, you know, I would love the power of, of teleportation, I think, because I okay. love, I have friends and family all over the place. I'd love to see them that way. Yes. I'd like also the power, like on Wonder Woman, when she had the invisible jet, because sometimes I just want to be ghosts. All right now. But right now, I, you know, I just want this thing to go. Yeah. Heal the world of this virus. Come on, Mm -hmm. zapping power. Also, can you also, if you get that power, can you also zap our student loan debt? Well, you know, there's that. While you're zapping. While, While you're I'm zapping. zapping. I mean, since I already have, if I can, you know, cure Corona, then that, you know, thankfully we got the Lord. So we can to the Lord in the harvest for the zapping of the Corona Hallelujah. and the student loan debt. Come on, yes. God. Jesus yes. paid it all. Yes. Right. Jesus paid it all. <laughs> paid it all. Absolutely. Okay. Last but not least, Tiffany, if we were to get in your car one of these days, post post COVID, we going somewhere. Uh Right, right, right. Keep it real. We going we going to a truce table retreat. We about to have a blast. (laughs) Post COVID. Um, What what would you be playing in your car? What what are you what are you what are you what are you in your vehicle? You know, this is, Micah was a surprise because today when I was driving around and I had my windows open, like the brother in the car next to me was like, really? Um, <laughs> so, you know, Sirius XM now has a U2 station. Let me oh, tell you something about wow. my obsession with U2 censorship. Right, exactly. I mean, it's either old school hip hop. Like, I don't listen to any music made past like 1996. Let's just <laughs> I respect all that. music has and I, I could see including why, including gospel, like all my gospel. Oh, nineties, oh yeah, nineties yeah. music, nineties totally. hip hop. Shout out to Tribe Called Quest, my favorite, whatever. But right yeah. now, ever since, and I'm not driving around as much, but ever since Sirius <laughs> XM added this YouTube station, let me tell you something. About it. I was 
and, and when Facebook first came on, one of the memories, you know, you start, this is back in, I guess, 2005, when you're like meeting all the people you went to elementary school with, whatever, yeah. and we're all sharing memories. <laughs> and everyone is like, I remember Tiffany, I remember when you would come to school, you used to wear a denim jacket, and you had a, a purse. I was in second grade. I had a, a taupe purse. Where am I going? What was in that purse? Uh, like, wow. I school, like I was a grown You were a professional. I was a professional. Professional. But I had a YouTube <laughs> patch sewn onto my jacket. So that's how far back I go with YouTube. I so love YouTube. I did get to see them in concert, which was amazing. Nice. And all I, I'm telling you, I will be driving around Philly in the hood, windows nice. down, jamming to Red Hip And literally, the little brothers be like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I'm listening to right now. I can't even front. I love it. I did not know. I I respect that. I respect that. They 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 do have some jams and some some I respect that. And you know, there's even a gospel collaboration. Listen, no, they they were a worship group. They started as a worship group. I'm learning so much. I'm learning about you too. I'm learning about Tiffany. I did not know you. I know. These are I'm I got there's layers. That's like me and Phil Collins. I feel this way about you. Love me some I have a Phil Collins station on my Pandora I rock out to. Oh, all right. It's all right. So, yeah. It's all right. So, my U2 is usually the old school hip hop <laughs> or 90s gospel. I can live off those three genres. That's it. That's, That's it. And it's live. done. So, <laughs> well, thank you, Tiffany, for playing Force Fun with us. Now, this is your time to talk to our sisters at the table. Let them know what you got going on, what projects you got going on, how they can follow you, and all the things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and buy your book. Where can I? Where yes, can I... <laughs> yes, I got lots going on. So yes, you can buy Beauty Shop Politics, of course, in the behemoth that is Amazon or <laughs> your local bookstores. Let's support our independent bookstores while we can. Um, Beauty Shop Politics by me. I also have a second book um, that's, that I edited called To Turn This Whole World Over, which looks at Black women's activism in a global context, which was a lot of fun to do. I'm currently writing a book, um, which takes long as historians, you know, we take a long time with our books. I'm writing a book on Black travel and the history of Black international leisure travel since World War One. So no awesome. millennials, you all were not the first people Come to on. leave the country. Read with us. Travel groups. Read us. Um, black people <laughs> been on, on these international streets. Yeah, I'm not the first. I have the that. We're the first to hash it. No, no. And they were stunting in there in the black newspapers like y'all be stunting on the gram. Read um, us. So I'm writing about that long Read history. us for filth. <laughs> and what's been really fun is I've been, um, you mentioned it, I worked in the film project on becoming Michelle yeah. Obama's work. And um, I'm part of a company called History Studio, which is all about bringing historical content because we really content matters um uh, of working with filmmakers producers content creators podcasters anyone to make sure that when they're doing history they're doing it in ways that are honorable and good so awesome. i had a chance to work on some great film projects most of which i can't talk about but they're oh. great and exciting but it's just another classroom for me because i think you know more people will watch television and film depictions of black life that may not be in my class or read my book. And so I think it's yeah. really important that we tell those stories well. So I've been um, doing a lot of work with, with film and television lately, which has been really fun and exciting. So yeah, you know, just doing, yeah. doing things and just trying to survive this crazy mixed up world right now, teaching right. and church and all the things that I do, but you know, God is good and he's faithful and he's Come a on. keeper. 
and um, I'm just excited to be used by him in wherever arena he places. Mm, yeah, wow. yeah, yes, yes, Tiffany. Well, we you know we thank you as you um, have taken a break from turning the world over to come and sit at the table with us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. We learned a lot. I think at the table is going to love, 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 love um, um, sitting at the table with us this week. So uh, let's, come, let's keep the conversation going. Tell us your thoughts about Black Girl Magic interview with Dr. Tiffany M. Gill using the hashtag Truce Table. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Truce Table or email us your thoughts at asktruestable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truce Table has a Patreon account now, so y'all can send your love offerings to patreon.com slash truestable, or you can bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truestable. Truce Table is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York, and we have been your hosts, Kemeny, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.